Good afternoon. It's Thursday, the 26th of May, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, it's me, Brian Gerrish, but I'm delighted to be joined uh, both by Debbie Evans and our very own Mark Anderson, who is uh, talking to us from uh, the state. So it's early in the morning for him. I want to lead off by saying that this Thursday edition of uh, UK Column News has been made possible simply by all of the tremendous support of our viewers, people who've uh, made donations and, of course, people who've signed up uh, with the UK Column on a monthly basis. We could not have done this without your help and support because it's the professional team uh, which is now around us, which is enabling us to produce more because that's our attention and to uh, broaden out the coverage of the news. So today I'm on my own, but in the future, uh, I very much hope to be accompanied. Um, but let's get on with today's news and uh, see where it leads us. And we're going to start off straight away uh, by the word peace, which of course is a word which the uh, BBC really doesn't like. And uh, of course, they're not using it. So let's have a look at this headline here. How peace is slowly returning to the devastated Donbass city of Mariupol. The strategically vital port city is slowly getting back to normal life after the final Ukrainian forces surrendered. Now, of course, this isn't the BBC. It would never be because it's talking about getting life back to normal, calming things down and peace. Uh, that headline has come from uh, Russia today. And of course, if you're living in UK, it's now made almost impossible for you to read any of the official Russian reports uh, because quite simply, the BBC doesn't like those. So we're going to put peace, the word the BBC hates, across the screen. And uh, we couldn't put it more strongly than that. But let's give you a figure. And the figure is 100. And this is not the 100 days mission, which we've spoken about before in relation to future plans with vaccinations. This is the tragic figure. It's the minimum estimated figure for Ukrainian deaths per day on the war front. Now, a number of people are speaking out about this. I'm just going to add in here that aside from the deaths in a normal war, there will be uh, six to seven people approximately injured for every death. In Ukraine, the number of injured is less because the, the soldiers either survive or do not survive the shelling. And this is the tragic reality of this war, a war which is being prolonged with the help of the multi-billion pound BBC and, of course, Western media altogether. Uh, the reports are not coming in about the surrenders of Ukrainian troops. And uh, as, as the reports of Russian progress increases, uh, so we're seeing uh, less and less of this uh, reporting on, on our own media. So we focused in over the last few days on what we called the disappearing war. And uh, this was uh, a slide which we used a couple of days ago. I'm going to bring it up because I think it does the job very nicely. Uh, but as the, as the situation has been changing in Ukraine, uh, the BBC's reporting on it has shrunk. Uh, meanwhile, the propaganda content has come up. So we know that as far as the BBC is concerned, uh, Ukraine has been credited with wins and gains that were simply not true. 
And while that might have bolstered their own troops in the beginning, ultimately, of course, many of the Ukrainian troops now realize that they've been utterly deceived and uh, betrayed uh, by their own side. But the propaganda has been pouring out of uh, the West, including the UK. And of course, alongside the uh, pumping up of Ukrainian progress, uh, Russia has been attacked and belittled at every opportunity. So never mind the truth. Uh, what has been pushed out has been more and more uh, propaganda. And just to reinforce the point, uh, this is the uh, third of these little clips that we've produced. I took a little video clip of the BBC's uh, front page earlier this morning in order to show that, well, Ukraine has really dropped to the bottom uh, without any major mention of it higher up. So here is the opening page. It kicks off, of course, with uh, uh, energy bills and Boris Johnson. Uh, but if we get it to do a little scroll, hopefully this will work for our audience. We'll see that uh, that Ukrainian war doesn't get a mention at all until we're right down at the bottom of the screen and you'll see it start to uh, appear with uh, local news. So let's uh, just watch as this come in, comes in and uh, of course no real detail on the progress of the war at all. And at that point I'd uh, like to bring in Mark Anderson. Uh, Mark I'm going to say thank you very much for joining us. It's very early in the morning but I know that you've had your first cup of coffee so the picture we're seeing with propaganda over Ukraine, uh, are you also seeing this in the States? Um, to some extent, yes. Um, it's always very nebulous. Uh, one of the things that is never covered is simply the unvarnished statements of Vladimir Putin just to present his side of the story. And I've seen those statements and it provides some rationale, though Western intelligence and Western powers may not like his rationale, but yeah, you just can't get any objectivity, regardless of the frequency of the news, you can't get any objectivity. So you either get nothing or you get something that's barely worth reading. So take your pick, correct? Okay, thank you for that, Mark. I'll just say that I'm picking up across the internet that even though, despite what you say, there are some cracks appearing in the uh, American media where glimpses of the truth are coming through. The Washington Post has been mentioned on this, where people have commented, even the Washington Post is now having to make some sort of reports on what, what is actually happening on the ground, i.e. that Ukraine is now in a period where it's beginning to collapse behind the front and retreating. So is that the pressure, do you think, of, uh, of alternative, of new media that's finally forcing these uh, established news streams to tell some of the truth? Yes, I do. The, the alternative media played a role in getting the new disinformation governance board to be disbanded. At least we're told it's disbanded. So the alternative media, including UK Column, uh, is having much more influence. And so they have to at least act like they're going to tell the truth once in a while. And they're starting to feel the pushback. And that's a good thing. Yeah, tremendous. OK, well, you've been writing, of course, for many years for American Free Press. Uh, you kindly provided a front page, uh, which I found really interesting. So here we are. The headline is Globalists Gather in Davos. Ninety nine percent of them demand war. 
Now, I know you didn't write this particular article, but it's interesting to see that uh, American free press clearly picking up on the fact that the globalists, when they're together, the only thing they seem to want is division and strife and war. And uh, I don't think it's surprising that George Soros's face is the image that's been selected to go with that article. Yeah, unfortunately, right? We have to look at that again. Uh, it's like looking at something out of a Dick Tracy crime uh, comic book. It's rather disturbing to even look at. Yeah, that aside, uh, Davos and the World Economic Forum seems to have become sort of the new Bilderberg. They've always been more or less the flip side of Bilderberg, uh, a more open version of it, you might say. And so with Bilderberg not meeting again for apparently the third year in a row, it seems like all the power and the, the onus has coalesced into the World Economic Forum, which under COVID, as we know, has taken on a whole new dimension. Before COVID, it was kind of a funny and uh, stuffy and snooty discussion group in uh, eastern Switzerland. But now it's become this center of would-be world control in a very, very uh, pernicious way. And so it's not surprising then to see them discussing not just COVID, not just the Great Reset with respect to COVID, but now, uh, you know, the, the war situation. So, yeah, the, the World Economic Forum has really taken on an ever-broadening and ever-deepening role. And so AFP is putting that out there, and they're demanding war. Of course they demand war. They've given us an economic system that needs constant conflict, trade wars, real wars, rumors of wars, big militaries to even survive, without which the, the, the economy would excuse me, the economic monetary system would basically fail. Uh, that's the system they gave us, so they, they run it that way. So, yeah, this, this is indicative of the ever-growing role that the WEF is playing. It's way beyond just the COVID Great Reset now. So there you go. Indeed. So these are the people we really need to pay attention to if we're to understand policies that are appearing in individual countries because it isn't governments making the policy it's these pan-globalists. And uh, obviously Davos is, a, is one of the key centers. Uh, now, I'm just going to bring this gentleman on screen. Uh, he's General Richard Clark. And uh, this was sent to me a couple of days ago. And I was fascinated by this article because I don't fully understand what it means. I think I've got an idea. But the headline here is, Watching Ukraine, US Special Ops Realizes It's Behind on information war capabilities. And uh, the general said this, I still don't think that we have all the tools that we need and we need to continue to develop at speed how we push back inside the information space. For the last three months, Ukrainian leadership has used the information space to boost morale and expose the truth about the Russian military's actions in Ukraine, effectively swaying the world against Russia but now the US needs to start thinking about what authorities, tools and capabilities it will use in the information space against a more difficult adversary. Now, I'd found this quite fascinating because what he seems to be saying is that little country, Ukraine, has done a fantastic job in pushing out propaganda in order to manipulate world opinion on the news. And, <clears throat> excuse me, we, the Americans, uh, can't do the same. Do you think I'm right or wrong over that? I'm happy with, with either way, Mark. 
Um, this is the first time I've seen this. Uh, it, it's uh, it's interesting just in general that the information part of warfare, Infowars, is being given such uh, importance. Uh, it, it proves the old adage that uh, all all wars start with information. The shooting is a secondary thing. Uh, you know, molding the public mind is uh, becoming ever more important. And it's interesting what the, the people with all the tools and all the money they could ever need at their disposal talk about all these gaps they're having. Uh, it, it just sounds kind of disingenuous at first blush, but it, it proves how important information is in the, uh, you know, very concept of warfare. Yeah. That's why honest, honest news is so, so critical right now. And, um, so uh, yeah, there's there's more more to learn about this on my end, at any rate. Yeah, I think I think you've said it all there. I suspect that also he's thinking, well, we can manipulate the information that is circulating around Ukraine and coming out to the world for Ukraine. How would we get about affecting the inf the information that might circulate inside Russia or probably inside China? So this mix of what are we dealing with here? Is this, is this general already planning the next war on China through an information war? I'll, I'll leave our viewers and listeners to think about that. But something we want to remind people about is the sheer power of the BBC, because the BBC makes other propaganda, propaganda machines look amateur. And first of all, many people worldwide have no clue that the BBC operates so closely uh, with the security services in UK. So this is BBC monitoring. You can go and have a look at the website yourself, but you'll see on this very clearly the big label that they're working with HM government, but also other media, Black Sky, a university, Oxford Analytica, that's a very interesting one, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and BBC News. But this is really a monster and when we get into the people that they boast they've got available, now I'm not saying these people are doing anything wrong at all. The key thing is that if they are operating inside Russia or they're operating inside Ukraine, how do we, how do we know that they're impartial? And if we look at the uh, track record of many of them, because they've worked so closely with the BBC or with other agencies connected with the BBC, it's very difficult to know. So if you're listening in from overseas and you don't understand the power of the BBC, go and have a look at BBC monitoring to start to find out. But I'm just gonna follow through here with some of the journalists. Again, I'm sure this gentleman is, is I'm sure he's a very good journalist. Uh, all I'd like to say to the audience is that it gets very interesting when we look at people's background and we see organisations like the London School of Economics or indeed Chatham House that he quotes, because then we have to start asking questions that if he was an intern with Chatham House, does he now report in a way that's satisfactory to Chatham House? Um, Mark, this is uh, could be quite a, a deep area, but I'm just trying to give the audience a little bit of a, an insight into this and encourage them to go and look at the individuals themselves. But we know Chatham House has had a finger in many pies to do with global politics. Oh, absolutely. The, the think tanks are, I call them the kitchens of the new world order. 
that's where they cook up a lot of the arguments and white papers and reviews and studies to make the arguments that the globalist system needs in order to make policy. And so when journalists go through that filtering, through that ringer, that's, that's very suspicious. Uh, there was someone that applied at American Free Press, so maybe 10, 12 years ago, that openly said that she studied with the Council on Foreign Relations. And I just elbowed the guy that was interviewing her uh, kind of off to the side and said, you're not going to be able to hire this gal. We just can't go with that. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a red flag. There's no doubt about it. Uh, the think tanks have a particular point of view that the West can do no wrong and that Russia's evil from top to bottom. And there's no objectivity with Zelensky and the Ukraine. It's as if he's pure as the driven snow simply because Putin is assumed to be the worst villain of all, Vlad the Impaler, right? So therefore, the reasoning is Zelensky must just be you know, practically a saint. That's just illogical. That, that's a, a, a erroneous syllogism, you might say. And this is all you're going to get from journalists like that that go through that kind of schooling. I, I can't imagine it being much different. Yeah. Well, how do we emphasize the power of the BBC? We could talk about how much money they consume, which is getting close to six billion pounds now, I think. But let's look at this little tweet that was put out by one of the BBC journalists from the World Service. And here was the boast, a global audience measure 2021, 489 million people. So the BBC now crowing that uh, they're up to nearly 500 million. When the BBC puts out a half truth or it lies or it lies by omission, they're reaching and can reach 500 million people with this. So my point in uh, stressing the BBC here is that because we know the BBC set up the Ukrainian public broadcasting service, Sibylny, we now know that, of course, there's immense power coming into Russia, uh, into Ukrainian propaganda via the BBC. These are the comments from Tim Davey, the director general, in relation to this huge audience. He said he's delighted that the BBC now informs, educates and entertains more people around the world than ever before. Our global reach continues to grow. We're well on target to hit half a billion people by our centenary next year. The fact that our audience has more than doubled in the last decade shows how trusted and increasingly valued BBC services are right around the world. It also highlights the important role we play for Britain on the global stage in carrying the UK's voice, democratic values and influence. Uh, I'm gonna bring Debbie in very quickly here because uh, of course, you're a generation like myself where we have watched the BBC in the past. We have learned from our mistakes. Debbie, what do you feel when you read those sort of words or you hear those sort of words from Tim Davey? Well, do we have the right to reply to say that we don't agree with anything that he said? And I certainly don't value the BBC services. In fact, I ignore them. Or actually, I do watch the BBC just so that I know that anything they're putting out, normally the opposite is true so I, I use it for that tool but um, you know we've got a big license fee debate in this country and, and my advice is uh, why would anybody want to subscribe to a service that's clearly giving out uh, disinformation propaganda and in my opinion lies 
well, I would agree with uh, all of that analysis. Uh, but let's pop this lady up on screen just to rub things in. This is Lillianne Landor. She's the senior controller of the BBC World Service. These are her comments in relation to that vast audience. Global audiences for BBC News have reached record levels and our reputation for providing trusted, impartial news and information is world class. We've seen how vital our output has been to audiences in mo moments of jeopardy from the COVID-19 pandemic to elections and conflicts. So if there's a war, the BBC loves it. The more there's the war, the more they love it. The BBC has strengthened its position in markets of need, such as Iran, Afghanistan, Myanmar, and the Democratic Repu Republic of Congo, where access to trusted impartial news is paramount. We will continue to provide strong first-class journalism across our platforms. And I think the frightening thing about the BBC words is these people believe what they are saying to the world audience. They believe they're impartial. They, are believe, they believe that they stand up head and shoulders above other broadcasting organisations, and they believe they tell the truth. And of course, this happens because they very often are only listening to their own output. But uh, the result of uh, the immense propaganda being put in power, being put in behind Zelensky, is that, as we've said many times, what Zelensky says goes. And uh, this headline, which we uh, also showed yesterday, uh, of course, when he got involved in Davos, uh, what was he really pumping? Well, it was for maximum sanctions on the Russians. It was really hate speech uh, because coupled with the sanctions, he wants even more weapons. Now, Mark, I just want to lead on to uh, a really interesting image um, which you uh, flagged up. It's the Washington Post again. Uh, how the Biden administration let, let right-wing attacks derail its disinformation efforts. Now, UK Column News has actually uh, covered this before, um, but uh, you'd picked it up. So I'm very interested in your take on this story from inside America, as it were. Well, yeah, I didn't realize you had picked it up previously or how much. But yeah, this is... This is a strange and, and brief chapter in American intel and American government. The Washington Post report on this that you're showing itself is to a degree an exercise in misinformation because it says um, that uh, you know she became this prime target of the right-wing internet. The wording right there, the right-wing internet. There is no right-wing internet. There's so-called right-wing voices on the internet, but the post phrases it as her being the victim of the right-wing internet, quote, end quote. A very misleading use of language. Language is very important. I, I stress it a lot. And so then they said that um, about three weeks after this disinformation governance board that she used to head was formed, it was paused. They used the word paused. And then in practically the same paragraph, they used the word shut down. Now, paused and shut down are not the same thing. And if you look on Wiki about Nina Jankowicz, this rather flippant 33-year-old that was put in charge of this thing, she comes through some of the think tanks, including the Wilson Center. Um, uh, 
you look at that on, on uh, Wikipedia and it says that the, the body, the Disinformation Governance Board has been dissolved. They use the word dissolution. So, okay, paused and shut down and now dissolved. And yet at the same time, this article says that uh, they're, they're taking her resignation letter that she drafted and the kind of asking her to reconsider. So right away, we have this nebulous situation. Is it paused? Is it dissolved? What is this? And, and, and this, this is in the context of an article talking about how terrible it is that there was so much pushback, characterizing all the pushback as being unfair and vicious. Uh, how, how dare anyone uh, compare this to the Ministry of Truth in, in Eric Blair, a.k.a. George Orwell's 1984, but the fact of the matter is, is that it is analogous to the Ministry of Truth in 1984. It's, it's very close to that, at least in its general framework, its general thrust. And so the Post is acting as if it's a heresy to even criticize this woman or the Disinformation Governance Board at all, amid all this deceptive, shifty language that I'm talking about. So the Post is... A lot of people joke about the Post. They call it the CIA newspaper. I call it sort of the Bilderberg Times. It's a little bit of both because Bilderberg was created with CIA money, and that's according to a British professor. But I'll digress on that. But this article itself is very misleading and, and hard to follow. And so, but it's all the right wing's fault. The Post is always in a flutter about the rising menace of the white right wing, and white supremacists are invoked in this article as if there's this big white supremacist, white nationalist threat in the United States, which there is not. That is a non-threat, that is a non-issue, always has been, always will be. So the Post, in trying to pr protect a propagandist, is just pumping out more propaganda. Okay, uh, Mark, thank you for that. I was fascinated with the fact they tried to deflect it with the right-wing comment. That was very interesting. We've got a little bit more on this particular topic because um, you'd also uh, send us uh, through some comment by RBN. Just before we come to that, let's pop the original image back on screen because as I was having a look at this on the internet, I'm afraid to say this little message popped up asking me if I wanted more of the post. Uh, well, the instant answer to that is we certainly don't want more of the post. So we got rid of that pretty quickly. But uh, here we are. Here's the second one. Uh, lies Biden's disinformation board is not new. Nita Yankovic reveals that she's been working for DHS uh, since March. So um, I can bring in a bit more of the text here to, to give you uh, a little bit of help. Biden's supposedly new disinformation board may have been working in the background for longer than they led us to believe. Um, Nina accidentally revealed that she's been working for the DHS since March meaning that they have been secretly working with big tech companies to enforce the censorship of conservatives based on supposed disinformation. Uh, Yankovic revealed, uh, received a call from Jason Goodman, who attempted to interview her regarding her role in the board and how they would approach alleged disinformation. But she revealed she was not actually allowed to discuss her role, claiming that the excuse me, the press room put an embargo on her ability to do her interviews due to the abuse and harass, harassment that she's been enduring. So that to me seems like the old excuse when the spotlight begins to shine 
Don't come too near me because you'll frighten me and harass me. Yeah, uh, right. Playing the victim, in other words. Yeah, the, this is this just shows how shifty all this is. Um, you know, the, the classic questions naturally arise. What is disinformation? Who defines it? And then the Washington Post article that we just talked about tries to say that the Disinformation Governance Board was only going to do studies, uh, impartial studies on disinformation and make recommendations that it would have no enforcement powers whatsoever. I don't believe that at all. There's no reason to buy that. Um, why would they create a DHS adjunct? Remember the TSA, the Transportation Safety Administration that does the inspections at U.S. airports. They're also a branch of the DHS. Do they have no enforcement powers? The Department of Homeland Security, which also absorbed border security, and that's why the U.S. southern border, very close to me physically, is failing. Uh, all of their um, elements have enforcement powers. That's the whole nature of the Department of Homeland Security. It's not a collection of study groups. So the Post, at best, is being disingenuous in trying to say that she would have no enforcement powers anyway. So what is the so-called right wing even worrying about? That's very disingenuous. They would be, I think, a lot like Cass Sunstein, who was an apparatchik in the Obama administration, who was clearly involved in gaslighting the so-called opposition. And that included the old tactic where they, they put a urban legend on the internet or something that's half true or completely false, and they try and get the alternative media or other critics to bite on it. And then they turn around and discredit them for uh, fighting on something that's partially or totally false. So Cass Sunstein, who's sort of the predecessor of Nina Jankowicz, was directly involved in gaslighting people under Obama. Uh, this was, in my opinion, going to be another chapter of that. And so to say that she would have never had any enforcement powers anyway in her newly created department just does not ring true. So now we have to see if they're even telling the truth about whether this thing's been dissolved or not. Uh, Mark, th thank you for that. That's extremely interesting. And and Gus and um, uh, Cass Sunstein's name, uh, of course, immediately took me back to the fact that this American expert was used to help develop the behavioral insights uh, team applied psychology in UK. So I've got a number of publications where I can uh, look into some really excellent research by university professors who've been studying the application of political applied psychology. And Cass Sunstein's name comes up time after time. He was one of the people working in the background. So uh, I would agree that uh, when you see names like that, there's something very dirty going on. And uh, Debbie, if I can just bring you in on this, because, of course, yesterday we mentioned very briefly that we're now seeing psychological experts unleashing uh, what they call social media vaccinations uh, as a means of using applied psychology to uh, help spread positive message or political positive messages across the Internet. I don't know whether you'd just like to give us a little bit of a recap on that. Yeah, well, of course, this goes back to the Cambridge um, Social Decision Making Laboratory in Cambridge, where um, Sander van der Linden, uh, who, who runs it, 
has devised this go viral game to vaccinate the population against disinformation by giving them a little dose of disinformation. So we've almost got a psychological operation going on within a PSYOP. Um, and of course, we looked at uh, Mariana Spring yesterday and um, how the BBC and the media, mainstream media here, were also being almost groomed by this go viral game and in vaccinating people, or they called it vaccinating, inoculating people against dis uh, little bits of disinformation so that they wouldn't take any notice of them. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a minefield. And the behavioural insights team, Susan, Mickey again, and, you know, we could go into the whole of the SPY-B team in, in great depth. Yeah, so overall, when we come to it, we've got the power with the globalists as we're seeing at Davos. And then one of the key tools that they're using is the applied psychology, the battle for our minds. Well, if you want to cut through uh, that uh, type of manipulation, then we need to be looking at as many sources as we can. And I'd just like to bring this, uh, I'm going to call him a young gentleman up on screen, Wyatt from Defence Politics Asia. Now, he's been doing a lot of in-depth analysis of the war in Ukraine uh, using maps, uh, very considered analysis and showing the sources that he's using to build up the maps. Uh, but he did a special a couple of days ago, which I want to bring to people's attention. Uh, this was what I believe is an outstanding and simple analysis of the Ukraine war and the balance of power. So he looked at understanding the balance of power Ukraine-Russia geopolitical conundrum, current war situation and projections, prerequisite to cessation of war, peace negotiations, post-Ukraine war realities, considerations for Italy and Europe. Now, if you want to go and have a look at it, there's the link through on the uh, internet. Uh, but I found this a very short, very clever and very astute analysis, which people might like to go and have a look at. And uh, I'm not uh, solely pushing this gentleman. There are many other people doing some very good research on the Ukraine war with maps. But in this case, I thought that uh, this video, little video clip is, is really tremendous. And I'll say it starts off very, very simply. So don't be put off by the images that come up first of all on the screen. Do have a look. And I'm also kind of to balance this out, going to come back to some other sites that are putting out some very good information at the moment. The Dreisen report I've mentioned before, uh, that's got some very good um, articles about armaments that have been pushed into Ukraine. But also, if you don't know anything about the Russian hypersonic missiles, there's a particularly good and very detailed article on the Dreisen report. Uh, plus, we have a gentleman uh, broadcasting as the new Atlas, giving some really good analysis. And uh, the bottom right there in the darker color uh, colors is a gentleman who broadcasts under the title I Earl Grey. And he has also been doing some very, very good, very astute analysis, which I think we are delighted to encourage people to go and have a look at. Of course, make up your own minds. But of course, the more uh, good alternative sources that you look at, the, uh, the better the chance that we're going to get down to what the truth is, what the facts are on the ground in Ukraine. Well, uh, let's uh, do a little bit of advertising for the UK column. And I'd like to say 
once again, a big, big thank you to everybody that's been supporting us over the years. Many of you have been saying on quite a regular basis, please, will you do more news programs each week? We've wanted to do this, but we couldn't do it until we had a sufficiently uh, broad and capable team. That's now started to happen. And uh, it's your support that's created the UK column. So we're going to say a big thank you. We're also going to say if you haven't got your hoodie yet or some of the other gifts in the UK column shop, then perhaps you'd like to go and have a look and support us by making a purchase. Um, please share the information we do, what we do in order to get the information out. And once it's up on the UK column website, we're delighted if you uh, do whatever you feel is necessary to share it with other people. The only thing we ask, of course, is that you give the UK column a mention for the material. And I just want to stress this button, which is there on the website. Uh, but by pressing a simple button, uh, you get the opportunity to join the UK column. And it is just £3 a month. So if you're not already uh, a paid up member of UK column and you want to support us into the future, then press that button and join the community. And of course, that will also allow you to see UK column news extra, which we're unable to do today. But uh, most of the other news broadcasts we're doing are coming out with an extra afterwards. And uh, uh, we've been advertising the quest for open science with Nick Hudson. Uh, this is on Thursday, the 26th of May at 2022, uh, 2022, sorry, and time 1930 to 2115 BST. So circulate that or uh, join in that particular quest uh, if you are able to. Now, where does that lead us? Well, leads us to a serious subject which is all over the uh, media at the moment in UK and certainly in America. Uh, the UK column hasn't covered this topic at all. But uh, Mark, we got you. So I think we're going to say, please tell us a bit about the tragic events of this Texas shooting. And uh, the headline here from the Chicago Tribune is Texas shooting updates. Onlookers urged police to charge into the elementary school uh, with the words go in there. What actually, can you tell us what took place? What's your thoughts? It's very difficult to tell you exactly what took place because of the way the media has mishandled and botched this thing. Uh, it happened reportedly two days ago around one or two in the afternoon U.S. Central Time in the city of Uvalde, Texas, which is along Route 83, a semi-major route that's a north-south route. It's about 80 miles west of San Antonio. It's about 180 miles from where I'm sitting. I'm in South Texas near the border. So it happened two days ago. Uh, the event is very nebulous. Uh, what this headline is implying is reportedly correct. The alleged shooter, the supposed shooter, this person that they call Salvador Ramos, he's said to be 18 years old. The difference here with most of these other shootings, I'll put that in quotes, is that the police already had him as a murder suspect, and that's why they were chasing him. They chased his Ford truck in the direction of the school. It happened to go, you know, right to the school, and it, it 
apparently rolled over or crashed in a drainage ditch type thing right across the street from the school. So what's interesting is the police were already there when the reported assailant was on school grounds. It's not like shots rang out out of the blue and the police were called and they had to drive all the way to the school to respond. And of course, typically police are already, they're cleaning up what we're told is carnage and they can't be there to protect anyone proactively. But this time they're right there and they, they're they said to have a shootout with this 18-year-old. We're supposed to believe that this guy was able to outgun the police after his truck crashed and that he got out of the truck, was outgunned them just valiantly and was able to enter the school relatively unscathed. Nobody among these police marksmen, they, they practice their target shooting all the time. They've got all the best weapons. None of them were even able to put a bullet in his leg or something to, you know, disable him. So he goes into the school and then we're told he had time to shoot 37 or 38 people before the police could intervene. Uh, that's supposed to be 19 students dead, two adults dead and 17 <laughs> wounded who reportedly will recover. And this is after stories that led up to this point that said two dead. 15 dead, 14 dead, uh, 21 dead, uh, I guess 19 plus 2 is 21, but the numbers actually went incrementally up, even though he's supposed to have shot everyone in a single classroom, we're told, even though that was not always the story. At first, we were told he rampaged through the school through multiple classrooms. Suddenly, the narrative was he shot everyone in a single classroom. And then there was an intermediate story that there was two classrooms connected. And then there was also the story that he had a pistol and maybe a rifle. Then it went to pistol and a rifle. Then it became only a rifle, an AR-15, as even Texas Governor Greg Abbott said. Then we're told, get this, and I'm not making this up. The governor said this and the media said this, that some of the kids were shot beyond recognition in this short amount of time so much so that they needed to have DNA testing to identify the students, which is categorically not believable. There is nothing believable about that and much else here. Um, you have shifting details, you have shifting numbers. Uh, at first they said that the shooter was detained and that there were two dead early on, okay? Either he was shot dead or he was not by police, okay? It can't be both. Either he had a rifle and a pistol, or he had either one, or maybe he had neither. I don't know. Uh, everything about this guy is, is very tentative. So you see what we're dealing with. You're, you're dealing with a media culture that just shoots from the hip, pardon the pun, parrots what the government says, um, no matter what the source is, without checking it out. Uh, takes things that just don't sound believable or credible and just throws them out there. And so people don't have a solid grasp of exactly what happened. And yet in Washington, Chuck Schumer, of course, the uh, Senate Majority Leader, he's the New York Democrat, is categorically calling on more gun control and more anti-Second Amendment measures amid all this nebulous reporting, amid all this uncertainty. So this is what we're dealing with here. Um, I'm going to be calling the local Yavaldi paper, which is a weekly, which interestingly did not have anything posted as of yesterday. 
and see if they're going to do a, a, a more rational job. I, I'm going to talk to them. I used to work for local weeklies in Michigan and Indiana, weeklies and dailies, and, you know, see if they're dealing with all these uh, contradictory points of information and how they're going to report it. But, but this is what we're dealing with here. Um, all sorts of drama, all sorts of policy uh, pronouncements, but nothing firm and solid on what happened. And, and yet, Mark, you know, with a tragedy like that, let's just accept the basic report. With a tragedy like that, you would expect the facts to be very, very clear, very, very quickly, because, of course, the bodies are the, are the evidence. Um, so quite remarkable that this one appears so difficult to see what was actually happening. And I'll be very interested in your subsequent report after you've done your investigations. But not surprisingly, many people in our uh, chat box today are saying, well, at the end of the day, we know what will come now, which is a mega drive, a big drive to get guns off the American people. And are you, are you starting to see that backlash occurring already? Yeah, especially at the U.S. level. Um, there's a lot of uh, vitriol being spit at Texas itself because it's one of the most, most open states for carrying a firearm. Um, so there's a lot of uh, opprobrium coming down on Texas. But really, this is as much an attack on the First Amendment as it is, as it is the Second. There's all this conspiracy candy put out there, you know, in other words, things that just don't sound believable. And it tempts people like the Mark Andersons and Brian Garrishes of the world to seriously doubt what we're being told. And we should seriously doubt what we're being told with such imprecision, so, so much, uh, you know, nebulous information. But then the minute you say something like, this doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. The sources are no good here. The sources are no good there. You're automatically accused of being a mega conspiracy theorist when all you really are is a Columbo or a Sherlock Holmes asking why things don't add up, asking why the numbers keep shifting, asking why things just don't sound believable in the time frames or circumstances we're given. So they're, they're just baiting people. They're, they're setting up this tinderbox to come down on free speech uh, as much as they would come down on the Second Amendment. So both both the First and Second Amendments are imperiled here. It's information, excuse me, it's interesting that the Information Governance Board or the Disinformation and Governance Board that we just talked about is not going right now, is not happening, because if they were, they would already be at work because this happened only 75 miles from the border and the border is one of the DHS's, you know, main focuses. And so the Disinformation and Governance Board would be going full tilt if it were not dissolved, as we're allegedly told. Yeah. OK, Th thank you. Thank you for that analysis. And just uh, one more um, brief comment on this one. But it was another article from American Free Press, Green Beret, victim of FBI, Randy Weaver dies. What, what is this one about? Well, it's about the passing of Randy Weaver. Uh, you know, he was the uh, in Idaho, Ruby Ridge. You know, it's known as Ruby Ridge. There was these bellwether events in the U.S., right? In uh, April of 1993, there was Waco, Texas. That's about seven and a half hours north of me. Um, I've been to that site back in 2012, 2013. 
then there was Ruby Ridge with um, Randy Weaver. And there was also the Gordon Call incident in Medina, North Dakota. And I just wrote about that one. And I know a little bit more about that one because Gordon Call, who was murdered by police, his son, Yori, who was in this standoff with federal authorities um, uh, back some time ago, uh, he he's in prison for life. And there's people trying to get him out amid claims that he never actually shot a police officer. Um, so uh, and then there's the Montana. So Randy Weaver is part of this. Um, uh, you know, uh, group of or, or sequence of events in, involving uh, patriot, patriotic individuals or patriot groups that resisted government power. Now, there, there have been some things about some of these uh, people that, um, you know, raise some suspicions. Randy Weaver was accused of being a double agent in some quarters. I don't see enough evidence to say that. But I'm just saying it, it is out there. Um, but at, uh, in other words, to discredit the Patriot movement by playing the crazy Patriot, you might say. He's been accused of that. Again, I haven't seen enough evidence to convince me of that. But this is just basically a eulogy, an obituary about Randy Weaver, uh, whose wife and dog and son were all reportedly killed by FBI snipers in the Ruby Ridge standoff. Right. So, yeah. Uh, a tragic story in it in itself and uh, we encourage people to go and, and look that up on American Free Press and you can read the full article. Uh, thank you very much for that Mark. Now I want to say that we very often get challenged in emails from uh, viewers and we're very happy for this to happen but this particular one I wanted to share with you because I think it raises some interesting points so I'll read it out as quickly as I can. Brian, I warned you some time ago that you would keep running after the facts with regards to viral infections because you're failing to cut through the narrative. Smallpox wasn't eradicated. It disappeared on its own before the vaccines were introduced. No virus has ever been isolated, including the small pow virus. No virus has ever been proven to cause any disease. Medical diagnosis is made on stories introduced by the medical authorities. What proves that a certain infection, sorry, what proves that a certain infection is a monkeypox monkey virus? What test are they using? No medical tests are capable of identifying a virus. Where is the proof that underpins the story? Uh, by the way, the only danger of a viral biological weapon is the story that goes with it. I won't keep pestering you. The truth makes us understand that we observe. And looking at all the studies you care to look at within the medical profession approved by the medical authorities will not get you one step closer to the truth. Now, um, I'm going to say I know the gentleman who wrote that. I know that he's very well professionally qualified. And so I, I take his comments with respect. Um, our reply was to say that uh, in the first instance, UK column is talking to an audience where many people are just coming to the term to terms with the fact that things aren't right and if we attempt to uh, say that the whole narrative is simply not true uh, we know what happens these people simply put up a huge defensive wall and uh, walk away so my reply suggested that we believed that we get a better hit for a greater number of people by leading them up a number of steps towards 
what the real truth and the facts are, and therefore that we're not going to do things all in one go. Having said that, uh, yes, I think it is very important that people do delve into the whole subject of, of viruses and germs. And there are some very, very detailed reports by highly qualified people, certainly challenging the uh, medical profession. Uh, Debbie, don't know whether you'd like to add on that, but uh, it was quite a strong little email. And um, we are well aware of those um, arguments that uh, the medical profession is lying over the whole subject of viruses. But we feel there's a time which makes it appropriate to speak about them. And that is not necessarily every every news program or every time that something medical comes up. How do you feel about it? No, I, I agree. And I completely take Patrick's um, points on board. And, and I do watch Dr. Tom Cowan. Um, the, the, the terrain theory versus the germ theory is, is really such a big discussion. And um, the existence of exosomes as well and the existence of viruses and where they came from, if they exist, etc. It's such a big subject that I think um, I think it warrants a, a programme of its own, to be honest. But it's very difficult to be able to put those things into the news. And as you say, you know, a lot of people are coming to this um, and, and they're learning, they're learning. And we need to take some of them a little bit, a bit slower down the path. So. I completely take on, on on board what Patrick says, and um, and I watched I watched Dr. Tom Cowan, and I think that probably says quite a lot. Okay, thank you very much for that. Now we put out uh, a plea that if anybody wanted to email us, uh, we'd be particularly interested today. So we're going to cover some emails now. Uh, this first one from Jane uh, is interesting. She says, "Hi Brian, I was looking into the scenario leopard pox that Debbie mentioned in today's that was yesterday's UK column." I came across this info, which apparently is the new leopard diagnostic technology that the scenario was named after. It stands for leveraging engineered track RNAs and on-target DNAs for parallel RNA detection. It's a CRISPR-based method which detects DNA, sorry, RNA fragments from different viruses, allegedly. And then there's a link that people can go and have a look. And uh, Debbie, you'd, uh, uh, you'd actually already got this uh, uh, slide ready to go for today, but this is talking about the CRISPR discovery. Um, so what would we like to say in reply to that uh, email and the whole subject to this form of testing? Um, I think great research and, and thank you to everybody for, for loads of emails and this got lots to discuss over the next few weeks um, for sure but what struck me um, very much about this email was that I'd already seen um, something called the Helmholtz Institute and I didn't even know this existed it's the first institute of its kind worldwide and it researches RNA infection so this is this is the Helmholtz H-E-L H-E-L-M-H-O-L-Z Institute. Um, and like I say, it's, it's looking at diagnosis, early diagnosis and harnessing RNA in medical diagnostics, specifically cancer as well. But um, this leads us on to sort of, you know, what is going on behind closed doors and what aren't we seeing on mainstream 
media and and this is one of the institutes that to be honest i hadn't discovered i'd only just discovered and it tied in very nicely with um our viewers email so thank you very much indeed for that and the other thing of course we can say is that this proves the power of of uh, our viewers doing their own research because of course if we have thousands of people who are digging in and researching it is truly amazing what data comes to the surface that uh, UK column team on their own will simply not find. So if we can motivate as many people as possible to dig into any of the subjects we're reporting, that would be wonderful. Now, th this is uh, one of a number of uh, emails that has come in to us from a, a person called Wayne and uh, tells a story uh, which is pretty sad. And the ultimate result is that it points a finger at Jeremy Hunt and how so-called um, vaccine safety is being handled in this country. Let's have a look at this first one. And this is an email between the person and the Health and Social Care Committee. It was back at the 31st of March this year. The subject was vaccine safety. And it says, hello, a request to look into vaccine safety due to large numbers of people being injured by their jabs, including me. Jeremy Hunt made mention of looking into cases of vaccine injured in a recent conversation. So I requested request you follow up on this, please. I had brain tissue damage from my AstraZeneca vaccine, February the 22nd, 2021. And it was noted as being linked on my hospital discharge papers after 11 days in hospital. The prognosis was that I'd develop an autoimmune disease in my near future. Uh, with mention of MS and dementia by two separate consultants. Further MRI, MRIs have also been carried out as I do suffer serious neurological issues like migraines now, hypertension, which is a known side effect of the jab, fatigue and pain. I've battled back to some better form of health last year finally, but I've had to stop working as fatigue and migraines continue to plague me. So this person wrote off to the Health and Social Care Committee to see uh, how they could help. That seemed to be their job. Let's look at the reply here. The reply back from the committee on uh, Monday, April the 4th. Uh, Dear Mr. X, thank you for your email. The committee currently has a full programme of work, but I, but I save your email for consideration the next time the committee meets to discuss its future programme of work. Kind regards, James McQuaid, the committee operations manager. Now, there's a few more emails to come and we've got to move quite quickly. But Debbie, my, my feeling after reading that uh, brush off was what a disgrace. Well, there were some other words as well, but we'll say what a disgrace. Oh, I'm absolutely, I'm, I'm incandescent and, and you know, this is very brave of, of, of Wayne. Um, thank you for sending this because Wayne isn't alone. I know of other people that have written to Jeremy Hunt, um, bearing in mind his patient safety group, bearing in mind all that he promised me on record and said that he had also serious concerns about the COVID-19 uh, vaccines. And yet clearly he's playing lip service. I gave him the benefit of the doubt. And he promised me he would take this to the next committee meeting and he hasn't. And now he is stonewalling his own constituents, people that are writing the most polite, measured, factual emails, asking for help. And he is sending back an, a reply from 
somebody else, not even from him. And this is, he has since followed that up and he's been stonewalled again. Well, and and right, this, is, this is from the man that's going for a leadership, maybe. And apparently he was cycling away from a reporter running down the street this morning because they were asking if he's going to go for the leadership, if there's a leadership contest. I'm incandescent, Brian. Right. So let's reinforce this by going on and, and uh, showing how the email chain developed. So this is the, um, the next one. So Wayne writes back or emails back. He says, hello, Mr. McCade. I wonder if there's been a further meeting to discuss vaccine injured people like myself. I point you towards my letter above stating my injury I got from AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, Jeremy Hunt MP recently stated a need to look into vaccine damaged injuries as being a priority. And Christopher Chope MP, along with Esther McVeigh, Peter Bone and others, have spoken at length about the issue in the House of Commons. Uh, House of Commons. So our acknowledgement of our injuries is now finally out there. Well, what was the reply? Thank you for your follow up email. The committee currently has a full programme of work and are not currently planning to look into vaccine injured people. This does not mean the committee won't consider looking into this subject in future. And this is not the only email we've received on this subject. So the committee will be aware there is a public interest in this topic. Please do keep an eye out on our website for future inquiries of the committee. Debbie, this is outrageous what they're doing here. I, I mean, and, this is somebody yeah. suffering major inj injury and they calmly admit, yes, there are others suffering these problems and we'll see whether we can fit you in at some time in the future. Absolutely. And this is, I mean, I'm absolutely outraged. And I, and I believe Sir Christopher Chope has received the same information from the health secretary in that they have accepted that this is a problem and that there is, uh, there does appear to be a causal link between the vaccine um, and serious adverse reactions. And Jeremy Hunt promised me on record, on video, that he would take this to the next committee meeting. Clearly, these people are suffering every single day that goes by. They're suffering more and they're getting weaker because they're not receiving any help, any advice, any reassurance. I'm And Jeremy Hunt, please, to, to everybody that's listening, we really need to press Jeremy Hunt personally, whether you're a constituent or whether you're not, uh, whether you write to him via the Health and Social Care Committee or via his patient safety group, I would implore everybody to come down hard on Jeremy Hunt. He's had quite enough time and, and he should be pressed on this. I'm incandescent. Okay, um, Debbie, thank you for that. Now, you've, you've shared a personal email with us here, which, well, which is a report that's um, around Robin from Jeremy Hunt, dated May the 25th. Uh, what did he say? Good afternoon. Welcome to my regular patient safety update. Even though Westminster is convulsed with stories about parties, much worse stories of patient harm are just not going away. This week, we heard really concerning news about a potential cover up at the Northeast Ambulance Service, a really frustrating stonewalling on workforce issues at the Select Committee, and two reports highlighting just how badly maternity services let down black and mixed ethnicity women, sorry, struggling over that one. The only silver lining is that COVID continues to decline. Who would have thought we would be taking comfort for that? So this is just, 
uh, it's pompous, it's, it's arrogance, it's ignorance, it's a brush off. And yet, if we have a look at these uh, slides here, um, here's Jeremy Hunt, top left, um, taking part in the annual global ministerial summits on patient safety. And that brings us into the subject of the World Health Organization. So you can do a bit of research and find that. You found this particular uh, classic one, uh, Debbie, uh, the one on the right I'm referring. I'm not sure the NHS would want me back, says former Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt. Uh, we've also got a new story where he's apparently ordering urgent action on patient safety at independent hospitals. But if you've been damaged by a vaccine, it's go away and don't bother me. Um, Mark, you're the other side of the pond, but what is happening in the UK at the moment is outrageous. The public are just simply treated as dirt on your shoe. And if you're injured as a result of the vaccines, the government doesn't want you to go near them. Uh, in a minute, we'll hear a little bit of a video clip that will perhaps explain why. But uh, just quickly, what's your thoughts? Well, yeah, the arrogance is just intolerable. Um, you know, Big Pharma has really ascended over the last few years, maybe decade, uh, achieving unprecedented powers over the press and medical authorities. It's as if they all work for Big Pharma now and our overlord and savior, not Bill Gates. And therefore, yeah, people are treated like cattle. Uh, real or at least potential vaccine injuries are just shrugged off. Meanwhile, here in the States, for example, the local media affiliates uh, are advertising boutique prescription medications around the clock, like Enbrel, uh, drugs that um, have a litany of side effects, including death, which they actually announce on the paid uh, TV ads. And so they can be very open about all sorts of prescription drugs, some of which are made by Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson or AstraZeneca, and be very open about the fact that these prescription drugs can and sometimes do cause death and other very serious things. But when it comes to the COVID vaccines, oh, no, 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 that's sacred. They don't cause deaths. They don't cause hardly any serious side effects. And so there's a strange dichotomy there, even though the same companies make these drugs and the COVID vaccines. Very interesting. Yeah, th thank you, Mark. Well, we just rub it in with Jeremy Hunt because, of course, he's, his background is is all things supposedly to do with health and social care. So uh, here we've got a bit of um, uh, a bit of his uh, history uh, going back to 1979, Select Committee of Parliament responsible for oversight DH. SC and associated agencies. And uh, this is part of his patient safety work. Do cut in, Debbie, if I'm getting anything uh, wrong here. But I think it's pretty clear that he, he is operating in the realm of patient safety, except when you bring a patient who suffered in his direction and then he doesn't want to know. Uh, this is what the mission of the patient safety watch is. We carry out research into the levels of preventable harm in healthcare systems and campaign for better patient safety. Uh, to make healthcare systems around the world safer, you need to know the amount of preventable harm they cause and how to reduce it. That's where we come in. At the moment, there are too many versions of this uncomfortable truth. 
So we will help improve patient safety by commissioning research that highlights the extent and causes of avoidable harm and the policies and interventions that will minimize it. Um, Debbie, when people come forward in numbers and say they're suffering serious adverse reactions following the administration of a vaccine, they're providing very powerful evidence for this body, but the body doesn't want to take the evidence. No, exactly. This means absolutely nothing. This is just a front. It's a smokescreen. Jeremy Hunt, if he was really wanting to debate serious adverse reactions, it would have been taken as an emergency debate. I mean, we've just seen emergency debates for Partygate. We've just seen emergency debates for pretty much everything else, and yet nobody wants to talk about serious adverse reactions. It's completely off topic. And I just can't say enough. Jeremy Hunt needs to be pressed. He needs to be emailed. His office needs to be emailed. And he needs to be held account um, immediately. He was pro-lockdown. And this is the man that could run our country next if there's a leadership contest. You know, this is very worrying. Yeah. So we need to be on his case. Now, let's come back to you, Mark, because uh, you've written the piece um, about the who's power grab. That's what I'm going to call it. So here's your article, signing of whose pandemic treaty threatens the freedom of all Americans. And uh, we'll just make that big on screen because I think we'd agree with that sentiment here in UK. Well, in fact, it affects any nation state worldwide. Tell us a bit about uh, what you've discovered and what you're stating in your article. Well, keep in mind right now, Brian, uh, and I'm reading from my article. You can still see me okay, right? Uh, we can we can see you. Okay, yeah, just making sure that I, I switch screens on my end. Um, and now we might have lost you. Okay, that's that's a shame. We suddenly seem to have lost him. We'll see whether Mark comes back in a second. Oh, Mark, can you hear me now? Yeah. Um, see, I was reading uh, on a different screen, and um, I put the tab, and I could still hear you, but evidently the uh, the visual uh, is is challenged there. Uh, that's okay. Um, right now, the the seventy uh, fifth World Health Assembly of the World Health Organization is meeting in Geneva. They began May twenty two. They end May twenty eighth. And what the Associated Press talked about, and that's what this article you're showing on the screen talks about uh, at the very beginning. The Associated Press came out with a fact check trying to debunk anyone that claims that the World Health Organization is going to get more national authority surrendered to it. So it becomes eventually an overlord over its member states. So the AP associates that very old wire service is basically trying to discredit anyone who's worried about this. But what I'm talking about in this article is that if you only read certain documents, like a particular a World Health Assembly WHO document that actually contains some of the amendments to the international health regulations that the Biden administration brought out early this year and is promulgating in the WHO system. If you only read the document by the WHO about those amendments and you only read the White House statements about those amendments to the international health regulations, 
then you might not see much in the way of evidence that the WHO is going to be uh, much more empowered. However, what I found was if you look a little broader and deeper, including the Independent Panel for Preparedness and Response in particular, which this article also talks about, then what you see are um, rationales being made to empower the WHO. And in fact, the White House statement I just mentioned does actually use the words strengthen the World Health Organization. And the other document I mentioned that the Associated Press was referring to, again, even though there's no smoking gun evidence of empowering the WHO, still talks about strengthening the World Health Organization. So it's not as if those things are absent of those things. But when you look at this independent panel I mentioned, which is uh, co-chaired by Helen Clark, kind of a ubiquitous globalist and the former New Zealand prime minister, <clears throat> and you look at all the different things it contains, such as the proposal for a world pandemic treaty and various rationales to justify strengthening the WHO. And if you take it in its entirety and you look at everything as it compiles, then you see that there is a push to empower the World Health Organization. And that can't help but come at the expense of national sovereignty at some point. And uh, Bill Gates, I think we'll talk about it in a minute, is talking about his new germ organization. What a cute name, right? And having a WHO-connected, active, go-to, uh, you might say, ambulance crew in a way, that would almost be like a weapons inspection team and would go from country to country and would even be stationed in various nations to help national authorities respond to current and future pandemics. And what's larded throughout all of this is the uh, distinct anticipation and expectation that there's going to be new pandemics. It's, they're not just worried about the current one resurging. There's a very strong emphasis on new ones and that's among many rationales being presented to strengthen the WHO. Um, and they're talking also about a global health threats council, uh, along with the World Pandemic Treaty that I mentioned, and um, bodies like that. Also, the panel believes that a framework convention is needed. That's that independent preparedness panel, a framework convention. And that would look for gaps in national responses so far with COVID. You see, so they're, they're constantly looking for the way nation states have not measured up, which is one way they try and provide rationales for centralizing more authority uh, at the WHO. And typically, strengthening institutions is done incrementally. It's known as patient incrementalism. The Fabian Socialists talked about that. That's why they use the symbol of a turtle, patient gradual incrementalism. Of course, with COVID, they're trying to turn up the heat and move things faster. But um, all told, you see the same basic benchmarks and uh, uh, signposts along the way. And above all, uh, the WHO uh, literature and the Independent Preparedness Panel literature, they talk about that above all, everything needs to follow the United Nations system, quote, end quote, the United Nations system. Now, automatically, when you join the WHO, even with the creation of the United Nations itself, um, you're ceding some authority, you're, you're setting up a supranational system. So the very act of belonging to these organizations uh, puts sovereignty at risk and erodes it to some degree. 
Yeah, so Mark, to say that there's no, no no concern here is just not true. You have to look at all the different sources. I read about 120 pages or more of this and found out that the Associated Press and these fact checkers, once again, are not really fact checkers at all. Uh, Mark, thank, thank you for that. What's interesting is that you've come into this, uh, we'll call it a story, but it's, it's real, it's happening. Uh, from the American side, we hadn't had any prior discussion. So it's really good to see that uh, both sides of the Atlantic people are onto this. And I'll just uh, pop this up on screen because uh, Debbie picked up on the fact that Steve Baker was asking some uh, questions about this WHO treaty. So this is one of the British MPs, Steve Baker MP. Uh, and he, he said that um, Sajid Javid had replied on the proposed WHO treaty. He's clear the UK won't sign up anything that compromises our sovereignty or could implement lockdown, lockdowns out of our control. Uh, well, that's pretty interesting. And uh, this one, I think this is his actual reply. Um, Debbie, I can see you nodding, so I'll expand this one on, on screen. So Sajid Javid said, we're clear that the UK would not sign up to any instrument that compromises the UK's sovereignty. That includes any instrument which compromises the UK's ability to take domestic decisions on national restrictions and other measures. On the contrary, our support for a new pandemic instrument is intended to strengthen our ability to prevent, detect and respond to future health threats without the restrictions seen in the COVID-19 pandemic. The UK has led from the front on learning to live with COVID-19 and will continue to do so at the forthcoming G7 and World Health Assembly. Why is it I don't trust his reply, Debbie? And I'm going to say a very quick response for, from you, please, because I'd like to get in the video clips that we've got, because I think those clips are so valuable. But uh, what were your thoughts on Sajid Javid saying, don't worry, we've got it all under control? Well, I don't believe him. And as some might know that some of these international health regulations have been dropped um, and we're very suspicious that they might maybe resurge somewhere that no one's expecting them to, to, to be. So and I'm also very concerned, too, about the G7 and, and just for future, Mark might want to look into this, uh, the G7 health ministers meeting that they had on the 19th and 20th, I think it was of May, where they discussed the scenario leopard pox, because apparently they were all in solidarity for supporting who and giving who more powers. So do I believe Sajid Javid? No. OK, well, uh, I think we ought to give the health warning on the, the next three uh, little video clips. Um, uh, Debbie, you sourced these and they are truly incredible. We've taken clips out of the full videos. We're on the subject of our old friend Klaus Schwab. Uh, what is he talking about matters to do with vaccines and and uh, dealing with uh, so-called pandemics. Let's have a look at this uh, first little clip and then I'll come back to you, Debbie. Now, I, I come back to a technical question when you produce uh, those very uh, complicated medicines about mRNA. Some people say the knowledge is not actually not the intellectual property of the product, it's the production itself. Could you say something about it? Um... I think there are across the board. For example, we don't own right now for this vaccine intellectual property. It is BioNTech, right? But we developed the manufacturing process to be able uh, to do it. So all of that are things that uh, they count. 
In general, I think that um, the mRNA technology it is a very powerful technology. Mm. I don't think it's a, a panacea. I don't think it's the holy grail. I don't think that will treat all diseases in the world. But I do think that is we have just scratched the surface of what we can see. Yeah. How much is the mRNA uh, technology protected by patents or... Uh, I think it's the holy grail. Without the protection, BioNTech would never have the money that uh, they got from their investors to develop it. Without uh, intellectual property, we would never have the money that we have because we, everything we do, we do it with other people's money. They're called the shareholders. Yeah. They can tell us, put the money in new research or give it back to us for dividends. Uh, I think the bloodline of the innovative industry, it is this concept that a property cannot be only be bricks and mortar, can also be intellectual property. And that's exactly what is happening in technology or in high biology. It's very important. Now, that leads me exactly to the next question. What drives you, actually? Uh, is it scientific uh, curiosity? Is it, uh, I mean, you excluded already uh, uh, material, uh, let's say, reasons. Uh, what, what, drives, what drives Dr. Buller? Uh, me, me personally. Yeah, uh, personal. I like what I do. I like what we do because it's intellectually challenging but also has the additional benefit that the success brings good to the world. It's very intellectual challenging to make a perfect cell phone. And that brings satisfaction to the world and anybody should be very proud of being able to do it. But when you are helping to make a breast cancer medicine or breast, a lung cancer medicine, you are getting not only the satisfaction that you want, but the satisfaction that the impact was saving lives. So, Debbie, very quickly, uh, these things are very powerful. They, they're not the holy grail, so therefore they're not the panacea. They don't solve every problem. I do what I do because I like helping the world, trust me. But at the end of the day, it's all to do with what the shareholders want. That's my summary. Over to you. My summary is, yes, it's very powerful. It's experimental. mRNA is here to stay. And uh, yes, we can take the credit and we want to do everything for the good of everyone else. But without BioNTech, and this is where I, this is what I really picked up on that, in that without BioNTech, they wouldn't be anywhere. So people are looking at Pfizer, 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 quite rightly. But we mustn't forget in the shadows is BioNTech. And that also ties in very nicely at some point in the future. Uh, with Bill Gates's germ team and the vice president, uh, I've forgotten her name, Karina Karinko, um, vice president of BioNTech. So you can see the way that the, everything interconnects. Uh, certainly. Well, let's add the second clip then and connect things a little bit more because the discussion uh, went on to protecting those that you love. Let's see this one. I don't think we should be afraid, but I think we should be prepared. And that should, even the little fear that we have, we should, that should ease it. And if we are prepared, I think science will win. Now, uh, some people may argue, uh, you have now these new treatments. Um, some people may argue, why should I get vaccinated if there is a treatment? Well, how would you respond? Because I think the goal is not for you to get sick and then treat you. <laughs> the goal is to prevent the sickness. Yeah and that will maximize your chances to do well 
and that will maximize the chances of people that you love not to get infected. Yeah. You vaccinate not only for yourself, you vaccinate also to protect society and particularly to protect those that you love the most because they are the ones that you are together. What, what do you foresee, um, I mean, most of uh, we, we, I think we set the standard because in Switzerland for those who do not know, there are no restrictions anymore. So we set the standard that we uh, require vaccination. Now, how many vaccinations do we need in the future? It's a very good question. And I think, uh, first of all, I think we will need vaccinations in the future, but also I'm concerned that the compliance of the population yeah. with the recommendations of the experts will not be very high. More people did the first dose, and then lesser did the second, and then lesser will do the third and the fourth. And um, so for that reason, we need to find the solution that makes it easy for people to get. And I think this solution, it is the number one priority is to have a vaccine that lasts a year. So once people know that it is once a year, I do it every autumn, for example, fall, uh, I think that will improve the amount of people that they are getting the vaccine. And I think you, there are also certain attempts to combine it with a anti-flu vaccine. That is another very good way to make it, uh, uh, to, to improve compliance. If someone thinks that I'm going to go to the doctor or to the pharmacy, but at least with one shot I will get two, flu and that also will increase the number. So these are the things, it's very difficult to improve the efficacy right now, it's very, very high. But what you can improve it is uh, how convenient it is and how can last the efficacy for a longer period of time. So Mark, very quickly, the efficacy is very, very high. We don't provide any evidence to prove that, but we're gonna claim it. But what we know we want to do in the future is to get a big super vaccine with a multiple of ingredients into your arm once a year. Are you on board? <laughs> no, he, he talked about as if a vaccine lasting one year would be some big achievement. You know, the, the MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, standard vaccine regimen in the United States lasts basically a lifetime. A tetanus shot is at least 10 years minimum. Um, so they act as if these vaccines, if they even last a year, if you want to call them vaccines, uh, is some big achievement. And uh, there, there, you did get those letters to the editor, those letters to you about, you know, questioning the nature of viruses and all. And that's good and well. That's something to talk about down the road. But one thing we do know is that you don't necessarily need vaccines to have immunity. I mean, everything from uh, lysine, which is a, an amino acid type thing, to vitamin C, to um, uh, zinc, uh, to a good diet, better rest, uh, down the road, a lot of grandma's remedies, you might say there's um, dozens of things that one can do, breastfeeding babies. Why are we so worried about formula shortages when a lot of baby formula is not even healthy? Um, there's all sorts of things you can do from childhood on up to boost immunity where you would never need hardly any, if any, vaccines. But they don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about uh, vaccines are really the only way to go, maybe a little bit of therapeutics and treatments. They want there to be this medical treatment monopoly regardless. And follow the science, as he said. While I'm watching the clock, we'll do the last clip because the last clip says what these people are really worried about. And if you want some good news, 
stay with us on this clip and uh, uh, then we'll just come back briefly to to say goodbye. So let's listen and watch this last clip. When you get the conditional approval or preliminary approval, um, who is actually carrying the risk and uh, the liability if something is happening? I mean, if it's not working out well. Most uh, countries, they identify that. In the US and in Europe was always clearly identified. So they are taking uh, the liability if there are lawsuits, for example, against that. So the government is taking the liability. It is. It was some uh, issue with... Uh, the US and Europe were ready for that already, but I think most of the issues were with some um, countries that were not familiar with that. Yeah. Um, we took... Um, what, what was our concern mm -hmm. with the vaccine? It's not with any other medicines. For example, now we don't ask anyone to do anything on liabilities, but with the vaccine, that we knew that there is a very fanatic group of anti-vaxxers that will go after us no matter what. They will claim that the sun didn't go up because people were vaccinated, and that created issues with the crop, so I'm suing you. And one thing it is to sue you in the US, another thing is to sue you in a country where the legal system is not up to that standards, or in Switzerland, right? So I think that's behind us. Uh, everything <laughs> went okay, and now I think we can move on. Well, there's unbelievable arrogance. Everything went okay, never mind the millions of people registered via VAERS or the MHRA system in the UK for vaccine adverse reactions, including death. It, we did okay, but we're really worried that uh, if we're not in a, a legal system where we know we'll be defended, we could be in trouble. And really, we're very frightened of the anti-vaxxers because they could come after us. Debbie, we're on the stops for time. But uh, what would you like to finish on with regard to that clip? Well, I would encourage everybody to go and watch that clip of Klaus Schwab and Albert Boulan. The, the, the whole, it's a half an hour of, it's unbelievable. But I mean, we're looking at compliance. We're looking at normalizing vaccines. Um, and we're looking at, in my opinion, creating illness, creating it in order to prevent it. So, I mean, I'm, what can I say? That Those clips just say it all. And, and while we're busy looking at the World Health Assembly, we need to be keeping an eye on the World Economic Forum. It's all happening in uh, Switzerland this week. Eyes everywhere. OK, thank you very much for that. Uh, Mark, I'm going to say thank you very much for joining us to, today. 20 seconds. <laughs> Great to be back after a hiatus on UK Column News. Uh, thank you, Brian and Debbie. Uh, good to get to know you a little bit uh, uh, virtually here. Yeah, we really have to keep an eye on what's going on, particularly Bill Gates' GERM. That's an acronym organization, as I alluded to a little bit ago, almost like a weapons inspection team going from country to country, ready to pounce on any virus that comes along. That kind of goes hand in hand with Albert Borla's uh, intransigence here and blindness to what, what the damages really are and uh, the profits that he's making, which are just so over the top and the subsequent control over governments that Big Pharma is getting. And of course, they're heavily connected to WHO and they would rather have the WHO more empowered than have to deal with different national governments. So that's gonna be a factor too, but thanks, Brian. Okay, Mark, thank you very much. Well, thank you both of you for joining me today. And I'm gonna to end by Great. saying one, once again, thank you very much to 
our audience, to our supporters, because without your help, uh, we couldn't do what we're doing. So thank you very much. If you're watching and you're not yet part of the UK Column team, please take out a subscription, join us, help grow the UK Column. Well, the UK Column will be back in its normal form tomorrow at one o'clock, and uh, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.